You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to LifeSpa.com, where we prove the ancient medical wisdom of Ayurveda with modern science. And today, I have a very special guest, Dr. David Perlmutter, author of the best-selling book, The Grain Brain. Uh, I have done a previous interview with him uh, a couple years ago, and uh, we're gonna uh, have another interview today with his newly updated, totally revised book, The Grain Brain. And we're gonna have a great discussion about that. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. David Perlmutter. Um, one of my um, heroes, really, I just think what he's doing is amazing, and I think the fact that he is, uh, uh, in a way, changing the world, no doubt changing the world, um, to do a lot of things. We don't agree on everything, that's for sure. Uh, we debated my book, Eat Wheat, with Grain Brain a year or so ago, and my mother said I won that debate, so I'm pretty sure that that's accurate. Um, but we're gonna go after it again, and I think we're gonna find a lot of common ground, and there's some areas where we differ, and I think that's gonna be uh, a wonderful debate. Um, Dr. David Perlmutter, board-certified neurologist, four times New York best-selling author, serves on the board of directors and is the fellow of the American College of Nutrition. His books have been published in 34 languages, include number one best-selling book, Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, over a million copies in print, um, totally updated and revised, that's what we're gonna be talking about, and some really cool stuff that you're doing in the future with your son, uh, Austin, my son's name is Austin too, Austin Perlmutter, uh, also a medical doctor, uh, his new book coming out in 2020 called Brainwash. I don't, want to, I don't want to miss that because that I think is something where we have incredible common ground. We want to talk about that. So I just want to just, we're just going to have a, a ton to talk about here. You know, after we did our first interview, uh, David, um, I got so much feedback, positive feedback that folks were so happy to see us have differences, be able to talk it out bang it out, hammer it out, talk about the science on both sides of the aisle, and do it in a, in a, in a real um, elegant, non-aggressive fashion. And I really think that more, and I think you and I talked about that afterward, how cool it would be if we could do more of this and have this debate and put all, put all the science on the table and just bang it out. Instead of throwing darts from the other side of the aisle and no one ever having a chance to respond. I, I, I see that all the time, and, and you go to the, you, you, you listen to, you know, Dr. You know, um, you know, Bernard, um, Dr. Bernard, or, or Grieger, or, or Dean Ornish, and it's, you, you hear one side of the story only, and they interview only those people, then you go to the keto people, and you hear only those people. And I hope today what we'll do with, the, with, the, with this is kind of show uh, the other side of the aisle a little bit. I'm going to try to be that person for you to kind of ask you some questions that I have questions about and, and that, that, that confuse me in this crazy world of diets that we live in. So uh, let's, let's, uh, let's get after it. Sound good? That sounds terrific. And, and I will say that I think the operative word uh, that got us through our last time together was respect and maybe two words, mutual respect. And I too had so many positive comments, you know, not about the content, but about the fact that we were, we weren't walking on each other. We were listening and not to, uh, that it gets lost. Our last discussion took place during the presidential primaries when there was such lack of respect seen 
uh, I'm, I'm not being partisan here. And, uh, you know, toward one person towards another person, which wasn't how we were raised. So uh, I'm glad that at least, you know, to our very small audiences in comparison, people can see there is another way uh, that people can have dialogue and learn from each other. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, you know, and the more I dig into diets, you know, we're here about here at Lifespouse, taking ancient medical wisdom and trying to prove it with modern science. And when I find science on both sides of the aisle that conflict, which happens all the time, coffee's good, coffee's bad, soy's good, soy's bad, I feel like I have to go to the ancient wisdom, look for time-tested wisdom. And I know you quote a lot of Vedic wisdom and you're very adept and understand that. And that's where I like to go. And, and that's where I kind of want to start in this discussion is, is, you know, this idea of what ancient wisdom really is or really isn't. You know, um, I, I know in, in your book uh, you talk about, and you've kind of shifted to more of a keto thing. I, I, I have uh, I, no judgment. I, I think I actually am more of a plant-based keto type person with 90% uh, plant-based and maybe 5 to 10% animal protein is how I do it personally. And that's what I've kind of come to think. It's sort of the ancient Ayurvedic way of doing it. This, the, the, the centenarians do it that way. They have 90% plant-based diet with 10% animal protein of some kind. Um, seasonally, we move into ketogenesis as a natural flow and ebb of, uh, of the natural change of the season, which I'm a big fan of. I wrote my first, one of my, my second book was The Three Season Diet, which is all about eating seasonally. But in your book, in the beginning, I think in the first chapter, I think you mentioned that, the, that, um, that ancient humans, our ancestors, weight like a 5% carbohydrate uh, diet. And, and I'm going to challenge you there just a little bit. Um, uh, one of my favorite books that I got written up here is uh, Dr. David Lieberman's book, The Story of the Human Body. You've probably seen that book. And, he cite, and he's a Harvard professor, and he cites some of the best anthropologists. And what they say, and everywhere I've looked, that the amount of carbohydrates that the hunter-gatherers ate were 35 to 40%. You say 5%. Um, oh, I, I think that what we're talking about here is the difference between total carbs and net carbs. Our hunter-gatherer forebears ate a lot of carbohydrates, but uh, this is non-digestible fiber in the form of plant-based fiber that they would find and consume. Uh, and I think the issue in getting to where we are today is that our net carbohydrates are too high. So I am all in uh, with total carbohydrates. You know, um, there was a segment a couple nights ago on NBC News where they were knocking the keto diet saying, you know, here's a diet that's low in fiber, uh, low in carbs, and uh, you know it's basically all animal fat, bacon. They showed a picture of a hamburger, you know. And, right. and truthfully, uh, you can be fully vegetarian and be in ketosis. Uh, Dr. Will Cole recently published a book called Ketotarian, right. and uh, so I think the biggest. Uh, uh, and I don't object with the notion that our forebears ate a lot of carbohydrate, but it wasn't metabolic uh, carbohydrate for us. It was metabolic carbohydrate for our gut bacteria. Dietary fiber, by definition, is not digestible by us, but is utilized by our gut bacteria. So I think that's where the big disconnect is. And uh, the notion that uh, the keto diet is a diet that's low in carbohydrate is off base because it's a diet that's low in net carbs. It's, it's a diet that really does its best to eliminate the simple carbohydrate, not the carbohydrate that we don't metabolize. I think probably one of the biggest flaws in modern nutrition 
is lack of fiber. And you know, it's always been thought about, well, that's what you throw out when you make it, when you juice vegetables. Remember, you, know, you, get, you, you get the carrot juice and you throw out all the pulp. Sure. You know, we thought that was inert. That's the best part. That's what nurtures your microbiome. So I think that's how we resolve that uh, conundrum. And I'm a big seasonal eater, and here we are in the winter, and I pretty much live on nuts and seeds this time of the year. Um, but I still don't get what I would call, and what you say, just is a 70% fat diet, where the hunter-gatherers, according to some of the best anthropologists out there, say they got about 20 to 35% fats, and you're saying 75% fats. So that's another disconnect that I just wonder, I mean, I know you can be in ketogenesis doing a plant-based diet, lowering your carbs, but it's very, very hard. And seasonally, it would be even more challenging. You can be in ketogenesis in the famine times during the springtime for sure. But at the end of the summer, when all your berries and, and, and fruits and vegetables and grains are being harvested, um, you know, nuts and seeds, all of that, there's a lot of carbohydrate there that would definitely push the body out of ketogenesis. So help me understand how it can be 70% fat when all the anthropologists say the hunter-gatherers were, you know, 30-ish percent fat. Well, let me, let me first uh, approach the other thing about, when, uh, about being into ketosis in the late summer and early fall when we are harvesting. That's, a, that's the operative word here because we only started harvesting yesterday. Uh, in the history of, of humans, uh, for more than 99% of our time on this planet, there was no harvesting of anything because we weren't growing anything. We didn't have agriculture. Now, it's true, however, that uh, the, the ripeness of the blueberry, the wild blueberries and other fruits that we might find and, wild, uh, and other uh, wild sources of carbohydrates would be at their highest level seasonal, with seasonality in mind, late summer, early fall. And that does some very important things for us. Uh, a, it changes the microbiome and tells the microbiome that uh, winter's coming. So we get to a situation where we begin to, um, we hold on to calories. Uh, lipogenesis is enhanced. Lipolysis, the breakdown of fat, is reduced. And th through mostly the action of the hormone insulin, uh, we prepare ourselves for the coming time of caloric scarcity. And so that's brought, brought about uh, by this uh, exposure to the simple carbohydrates that you just characterized. That's right. a very ancient, ancient mechanism uh, that well predates agriculture, that agriculture has played upon to put us in a situation of ill health. Because you look at the situation today, it is those very levels of carbohydrate exposure, simple carbohydrate, that are leading to the changes in the gut bacteria and the insulin signaling, for example, as well as signaling through the endocannabinoid system that's leading to obesity and inflammation and chronic inflammatory degenerative conditions that are the number one cause of death on the planet. Uh, I think the notion of um, grams versus uh, fat calories as a percentage is where that debate can sometimes run into interpretation issues. It's difficult to determine what our Paleolithic ancestors ate in terms of the percentages of calories derived from fat versus uh, carbohydrate. But in, in recognizing that there really weren't any obvious sources of carbohydrate to speak of, one wonders how there could have been, how there could be this discussion of so much carbohydrate in the diet. Yes, the analysis of their 
uh, uh, fossilized fecal material uh, reveals a lot of plant material, but it's a lot of fiber that, that's been found. And that adds into the discussion of total carbohydrate, not net carbohydrate. Uh, fat is, you know, has uh, more than twice the calories per gram of carbohydrate or protein. So protein carbs have four grams, you know this, and, and a few uh, listeners, fat has nine grams of, of cal uh, nine calories per gram. So it's very, very calorie dense. And as such, you know, it's really a sought after kind of food for people who need to sustain themselves. So uh, I'm not sure if that fully answered your question, but I'm trying. No, I, I think it's great. And I, and I just, I'm still, you know, wondering how we get 70, whatever that number is, but in your book, it was 70% fat. The anthropologists say it was 30% fat. It's sort of a, a little bit of a disconnect unless you're, you know, in the Arctic Circle. That's a different story, which we can talk about as well. I, and, and no doubt that these foods were harvested seasonally. And, and that's why I'm a big fan of seasonal eating. We now have Stanford research shows that the gut bugs did in fact change in our gut from winter to summer to spring. And that supported all kinds of support, immunity in the winter, dissipating heat in the summer, because the gut bugs would in fact change. And that's a very, very important piece of the puzzle. So we would go from a higher protein, higher fat in diet in the winter to a lower fat diet in the spring to a higher carb diet in the summer. And we'd make these dramatic changes. But I was reading a, 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 an article in uh, the journal Evolutionary Biology recently, and they were talking about how new studies show that we, that, uh, what did they say, that, that humans were uniquely adapted to digesting starch. And starch was what they talked about as part of the, the big surge of our, and I know you think it's fat, and I agree with you that it's fat, but I don't think it's only fat. There's lots of reasons why our brain tripled in size. Uh, lots of theories out there. We can bang that one around. Um, I have lots of ideas, including uh, coming together as community. One study, I think you'll love this one. They did magpies, and they had magpies trying to get to open up locked foods, and they had two or three magpies, couldn't figure it out. When they had 20 or 30 magpies, they figured it out. They went back, and they looked, and they said, you know, if, if more magpies can do it in community and be smarter, then was it humans coming together from tribes to communities to bigger tribes that we grew together and got smarter because we were in community? Yes, it might be cooking, might be meat, might be fish, might be omega-3s, might be fat, might be grains, but it also was us coming together as a community, as one, one culture. And that's what I think your book, uh, Coming Up With Your Son, I really love to talk about that all day long, uh, is the brainwash book that you've written about how how we are so dopamine reward chemistry based that we can't really come together as community because we're all looking how to get love and attention and support as opposed to being that love and attention and support. But beyond that, back to you know, the, the, uh, the diet, that, our, our, that they are suggesting that our brain tripled in size because of grain or starch and tubers were the things that we ate significantly. We were hunter-gatherers and we dug that. Even today, the, the Hadza tribe, they have more tubers, bugs for digest tubers in their gut. The men had more bugs for digesting meat, so they had these hunter parties, ate all the meat, came back, and the women and the children had all the, had bugs at, in, the, in the tribal areas for, for the tubers and the grains and the starches. But we also, my question to you is, we acquired a gene two million years ago or so for making our own amylase, our own enzyme 
for digesting starch. Why in the world would we have acquired a gene for digesting starch if we didn't eat a ton of starch? And the anthropologists all say we absolutely did do a lot of tubers. Studies I wrote about in my Eat Weed book, they found residue of gluten in the teeth of ancient humans three and a half million years ago. Wheat and barley, they, they started, evolved on the grasslands of Africa 20 million years ago. They could gather enough wheat berries in just a couple hours to feed them for an entire day. Pretty easy picking for getting ourselves fed. And they did find, and they, and they did find that, that baking bread started, recent studies, anthropology studies, started 14 and a half million, uh, thousand years ago. And that the reason we started cultivating our own wheat was because we were actually already baking bread and they needed more of it. So that makes you think, wow, for how long were we gathering grains and grass seeds, you know, for a very, very long time? And that goes back millions of years. And that also supports the notion that why we acquired the amylase gene for digesting starch. A deficiency of amylase is, is linked to baker's allergy and things like that. So help me understand that. Well, first of all, we didn't acquire, uh, you know, it, it's hard to imagine we acquired a gene. I think a gene that may have expressed itself was selected for then in the population that was eating starch. I mean, that's, I think, more in line with how we understand that process to work. And I have no uh, uh, disagreement with you in terms of the fact that uh, our ancestors ate tubers and in uh, many uh, uh, societies today that, that continues. Many um, societies that are studied in South America and to a lesser extent Africa continue to eat tubers. Uh, mm. Not that that's the, the focus of their diet, but I think that we do have the ability to break down starch. Uh, and, I, and I don't think that necessarily uh, root-type vegetables are something that needs to be totally avoided. I have always emphasized above-ground vegetables with lower starch, therefore, and higher uh, levels of, of fiber. But um, I, you know, I, I would challenge you to some degree with respect to the notion that uh, we have always eaten grain, and I think that there is evidence going way back, uh, you know, well below behind. Uh, the, the so-called agricultural invention that took place in multiple sites around the world uh, almost uh, with synchronicity from 10,000, 14,000 years ago. Yes, we, we would be able to eat uh, things that we would find growing, but it's the bombardment of our human physiology by this invention of agriculture, whereby wheat becomes the focal point of the diet that is a challenge unlike anything that's ever happened to human physiology. You mentioned the increasing size of the human brain, threefold uh, in going from our most uh, distant uh, ancestors until around 14,000. And since that time to the present, the human brain has actually shrunken by about 10%. So it is a, a bit of a pivot point that we can uh, identify and, and envision that something different uh, be, happens uh, 14,000 years ago. To me, I think it might be the agricultural revolution, not only because of its ability to suddenly uh, amplify our exposure to more simple and refined uh, carbohydrate, but for what it then deprives us of, and that is dietary fiber and higher levels of fat. Yes, it was the agricultural revolution that allowed us to store food and therefore travel and make the great the discoveries uh, around the world, pave the way for exploration of the Americas, et cetera, you name it. But on the other hand, 
there have some who have really called into question uh, this dietary revolution as necessarily being salubrious for humans. When we look not only at the contraction of the calvarium, the shrinking of the human brain, but also uh, the, the progressive changes that we've seen in dentition, uh, thinning of bones, and you know, indications that overall health for humans has not uh, necessarily been dramatically improved by the agricultural revolution. So, um, you know, you bring up some very good points. Yes, we ate wheat long before agriculture was invented. In our hunting and gathering, I'm, you know, obviously the, the fossil record would indicate that. When we look at coprolites, when we look at fossilized fecal specimens, we see evidence that in fact it's been going on a long time and bread making as well. Um, but I think on the grand scale, if you're looking at the two million plus year history of us as humans, uh, that there has been a dramatic shift in what uh, humans have consumed uh, that occurred with the development of agriculture. We're, we're in complete agreement. And earlier on, I said, I, 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 I really do praise you for changing the world. And when you changed the world, you told the world that maybe went a little bit too far telling that gluten is a poison, but you definitely told people that eating refined foods and refined grains and refined carbs and sugar is so bad linked to Alzheimer's and type three diabetes and it's a really important message. And I just wanna make sure we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. One thing we do know is that when they first started selecting for wheat, they selected for, you know, instead of the needleized little wheat grains, they selected for bigger berries which had more sugar and uh, actually less gluten. So the ancient wheat actually had significantly more gluten in it than the wheat after agriculture. So that's an interesting point. However, the sugar content did go up and we did refine the heck out of these things and we recently added all these processed cooked vegetable oils which preserve the breads, keep them squishy on the shelf for a month and that's why that's I really believe one of the major culprits, the number one Cause the number one abdominal elective surgery in America today is gallbladder surgery. The oils we put in these foods to preserve them, the bread will stay on the shelf for a month because the bugs on the counter won't eat it. And when we put it in our body, well, the bugs, in, the uh, bugs inside that, of know, us won't of the, eat it. The, one of our um, major contentions back five years ago when the first uh, version of Grain Brain came out, uh, re related to your points uh, with respect to gluten, uh, was we, we made the case that many people suffer from gluten sensitivity who do not have celiac disease. In other words, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And that was very disruptive, despite the, the peer-reviewed uh, references that we cited. And you know this whole notion that people can be sensitive to gluten, large numbers of people can respond negatively to gluten, who do not have celiac disease, either with uh, not having the genetic markers and or having a negative small bowel biopsy. So they don't have celiac disease and yet they may have uh, extra intestinal manifestations of gluten sensitivity. In other words, joint issues, skin issues, and even brain issues. Uh, we talked about that in Grain Brain. And you know what has happened then over the past five years is we've seen some really intense validation of that idea to the extent that in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2017, researchers uh, from Harvard 
uh, discussed the pervasiveness of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, that this affects a lot of, in this case, Americans, those are the ones that were studied, a lot of people are responding negatively when they consume gluten. Uh, I'd say probably not everybody, but I will note that Dr. Alessio Fasano at Harvard, who was part of that study I just quoted, uh, published a study in the journal Nutrients back in 2015, in which he concluded that everyone develops some degree of increased bowel permeability when they are exposed to alpha-gliadin, which is a component of gluten. It's a pretty powerful statement. So having you know, read that and, uh, dare I say, digested that, um, it, it really makes me think uh, that, by and large, gluten is something that people should avoid. Can you avoid it totally all the time? Probably not. Is gluten in my food sometimes? Yes, I'm sure it is. Uh, but uh, you know, to the extent that only 1.4% of our population has celiac disease, for whom the defined gluten-free diet must apply, uh, the notion that there is a lot more people uh, go walking around with undefined illness, and nonetheless, it could be a, a consequence of non-celiac gluten sensitivity, I think it's very important to get that word out. I agree. We have overshot the wheat runway by a lot. And anytime you overeat anything, you run the risk of becoming hypersensitive to it. Um, but there are studies. I'm looking at one here from the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Whole wheat may improve intestinal wall integrity. Uh, women who ate wheat, uh, a whole wheat diet has significantly increase of beneficial bacteria. Wheat's turned out to be a prebiotic. And also, they showed unexpected increase in transepithelial resistance, a measure of the permeability of the intestinal tract, shows a decrease in leaky gut. So my point is that there, there, I get it. There are a ton of studies show that we will rip your guts to shreds, and there are studies that show that it doesn't. And my, my contention is that, that we process food, that's going to clog up our liver and our gallbladder. You're not going to make bile, no bile, no bowel movements, no bile, altered microbiome, no bile, no buffer, neutralizer for the acid of your stomach. The whole digestive system dials down. And then what you eat, wheat, dairy, nuts, seeds, are going to go probably to a certain extent undigested into the intestinal tract. And those molecules undigested are too big to get into the blood. They irritate, break down the intestinal skin. They get into the lymphatic collecting ducts which the lacteals in the less intestinal tract, and there's good science that I back up these statements with, and that lymph congestion drains your brain. We know that there's glymphatics in the brain, it's draining three pounds of chemicals and plaque out of your brain, which can cause the brain fog kind of you know, effect that people get from wheat. We have skin-associated lymphs, can cause rashes and hives that get, people get from wheat. You have the lymph around your belly, which is now the mesentery, is its own organ, which regulates gut immunity. And when that gets congested, you get bloat and fat. So all these symptoms of gluten intolerance that people, we call, why are all these weird symptoms, autoimmunity? In fact, the new research from the brain uh, lymphatics is suggesting that when the brain's lymphs get congested, that's linked directly to anxiety, depression, cognitive decline, autoimmunity, inflammation, and infection. So that means that your, your drains are clogged. And if we were just to realize where the drain clogging effect came from, which is from processed foods, pesticides killing the bugs that make the enzymes to help us digest these hard to digest foods like wheat, and reboot digestive strength and heal and repair the system versus just taking the wheat out of the diet, 
Because I think, and I want to talk about that next, I think there's, there's issues by taking the hard to digest stuff out of the diet. I don't think that's a good idea long term for things like hermeses and, and the, the hygiene hypothesis, which I want to talk about. But my point is, is I feel like we, we, that wheat, yes, it can be a major problem. Sugar, yes, can be a major problem. But wheat eaten in season in a moderate amount that our ancestors probably ate, to me, and the gluten there, we just found whole wheat, and there's so many studies. I mean, I have hundreds, David, of studies showing that wheat shows benefits, lose weight. Big study in Harvard study from the Chan School of Public Health recently in 2017. 199,000 people over 30 years. People had more gluten, 20% highest gluten, had 13% less diabetes. We have... So, because, and uh, another yeah. Harvard study, if, yes. If I may, John, for just a moment, because there was a similar study that came out, I'm sure you're aware of it, that showed that uh, going gluten-free might be associated with increased cardiovascular risk. And I think that uh, these are studies, with all due respect, that are not looking, uh, that don't implicate gluten. These are studies looking at wheat consumption, which is not synonymous with gluten consumption. Because people who eat wheat, especially whole wheat, are getting more fiber in their diet, which we know is something that is actually helpful for the gut lining. So to say that eating more wheat is therefore good because he, uh, they're getting their gluten fix each day, I think that's an inappropriate conclusion. In the recent study that related decreased gluten consumption to cardiovascular risk, the, the, the headlines were, if you go gluten-free, you're going to have a heart attack. And yeah. what a perverse conclusion, even to the extent that the authors of the study said, that is not what we're saying at all. In their conclusion, they indicated what we found is that people who go gluten-free are getting less dietary fiber because not only are they avoiding gluten, but they're avoiding all, uh, all components of wheat and other sorts of fiber as well. So yeah. by and large, what we see in people who are gluten-free is they're low fiber consumers, and that is a risk. And I think, to be fair, uh, in recognizing the important role of fiber, as you mentioned, in diabetes risk and in other inflammatory conditions, and in terms of bowel permeability as well, it's not because uh, necessarily of the gluten. And I think it's probably inappropriate to connect those two and try and dissociate that from the fiber part of this discussion. Well, I, th I think that that. I, I agree with you. You can't make that statement, but but the fact that that we're linking, I mean, your book does send the message that wheat and gluten are linked to diabetes, and diabetes is therefore linked to Alzheimer's, and therefore we got to stop eating wheat. You know, That's right. And, and the reason I want people to go wheat-free is because wheat right now in America, as we have this discussion, uh, is a component of 40% of the foods sold in the grocery store. And almost all wheat products are really high sources of carbohydrate. You talked about whole grain wheat. How many people actually have the opportunity to, to experience whole grain wheat that hasn't been sprayed with glyphosate? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? So this oh, is, yeah. you know, like a hunter-gatherer might find. And I, I don't really have a huge problem with that. That's not the wheat that you eat when you're eating wheat-based products in the grocery store. So my Good. mission was to get people off of those high carbohydrates, simple carbohydrate, actually low fiber and often glyphosate sprayed products. Yeah, you know. Um, so I think we're saying the same thing. We are. But the wheat we that are. people are eating. I think it's so good to hear you say that, away. though. 
It's so good to hear you say that because I really feel like the people, the, the takeaway is that wheat's bad, no way can I eat it. And what you're saying is that if you can get the actual real wheat with all the fiber, and you're right, the FDA rule is that when you make whole wheat, it only has to weigh 51% of what the actual and wheat there is when you stuck it in there. heart healthy goodness. And that is so unfair. So yeah. if you're talking about whole grain uh, wheat, fully unprocessed, you know, that's a different discussion, but that's not what people who make the binary decision to eat wheat products or not, that, you know, that's a little bit too much for them to, I hate to say, have on their plate, but it, it's, it's too much of a cognitive experience for them. So to have the, the biggest throw, I said, you've got to go wheat free and you do that uh, by excluding wheat-based products. And then you're going to have obviously less carbohydrate, less gluten, and importantly, uh, you'll have less exposure to things like glyphosate. But the big point is, okay, now, did I just increase my risk for diabetes and cardiovascular disease? Yes, you did. If at the same time you cut the wheat, you didn't pay attention and make sure you're getting adequate fiber from other sources. And you increase your risk of diabetes by doing the same thing for the same reasons that set you up for Alzheimer's by not eating wheat. So that's what I wish, and that's where I would like and I love to hear you say that. I'm so happy because I think nowadays people who are really health conscious, people who are probably watching this podcast, are able to find really good quality wheat. And like Kamut, for example, my dear friend who grows Kamut in Montana, I mean, he's done tons of studies on the benefit of Kamut. It has way more, twice as much gluten and it reduces the risk. Of, it has twice as many antioxidants. It has uh, reduces the risk of diabetes significantly. It reduces the risk of, of inflammation by two times. So here is a grain that has lots more gluten than even modern wheat does. However, it actually has all these incredible benefits. So I think of what so you're it, saying is absolutely the context in which gluten is delivered. Let me yeah. let me take you back to a statement that you just made. You said going wheat free increases your risk of Alzheimer's. I'm not sure how you if can you, make that If connection. you don't get the, if you eat, like you just said with the heart disease, if you go wheat free and then you don't replace that fiber, Good. you're setting okay. yourself just up for problems. For, for everybody, yes. but yeah, that's yeah. the big issue here. Right, I agree. We're going down the same road. I think we're actually gonna up in the same place, but I have, one other, I have one other point I need to get clarified. And you know these studies too. Studies show, there was one study show that people who eat the most wheat have four times as much mercury in their blood as people who are gluten free. In another study, people who eat who are gluten-free have significantly less good bugs and more bad bugs. In another study, people who eat gluten-free uh, have significantly less killer T cells than people who actually eat wheat. All of which is suggesting that, and we've been eating hard to digest sort of poisonous foods for millions of years. You know, goitrogens and lectins and phyt phytic acids and, and uh, oxalates and nightshades. What we evolved to, and those foods that were hard to digest triggered irritation and gut immunity. You probably know the studies where they measured the, uh, the, the, the um, Amish kids who have the lowest rates of asthma on the planet. And they compared it with the heterite kids who are also from Austria, Switzerland, same genetics, but they have the highest rates of asthma on the planet. And they did sterile dairy farming and the Amish did old fashioned kids run barefoot in the barns, breathe in the dust and they have the lowest rates of asthma. When they measured the dust in the barn, they found that the dust was an irritant to the respiratory tract that triggered an immune response and they don't get asthma. Is it possible that wheat, because of the anti-nutrients on them, which are harder to digest, and nuts and seeds and grains and all these hard to digest foods that so many people say we should not eat, 
are actually irritating the intestinal tract, triggering a level of gut immunity. And when you take all that away, including the fiber, we end up in an immune-compromised situation. Is that possibly why we have four times the amount of mercury in people who, when they did the mercury study, they had three groups of people. One group of people who, had, who, were, who were celiac, who were on a gluten-free diet, people who were celiac who who hadn't started the gluten-free diet yet, and people who were non, uh, who were eating wheat and they were not celiac. The people, the 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 both of the ones on the, uh, the celiac and the people who just started the celiac diet, um, gluten-free diet, had four times more mercury than the people who ate wheat. Is it possible that by taking and globally taking the food out of the diet, and not fixing the cause, which would be the kind of wheat, when we eat it? the digestive breakdown because of all the things that you mentioned, no fiber, bad foods, processed foods, and not fixing that problem, that we end up setting ourselves up for a bigger problem down the road? I, I would say no question. And uh, frankly, uh, what we see in uh, you know, celiac patients oftentimes are strictly gluten-free and yet still have issues because then they develop other cross sensitivities. They develop sensitivities to uh, other proteins. Um, be they uh, peanut-related uh, or um, even casein-related. Because once that bowel has been violated, uh, permeability has been increased, your first line of, I think you said the intestinal skin. Did you say that? I did say that. Yeah, I love that term. It's great. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'm going to pirate People don't know what epithelial is, so I use the, skin. Uh, barrier has been violated, you set yourself up for a host of other uh, reactions. So we frequently see, see people who have documented uh, food uh, allergies as demonstrated on blood work and who seem to improve a little bit with uh, elimination of that particular challenge, but then have a host of others. And I think, strangely, it, it, it relates back to what you've mentioned earlier, the so-called hygiene hypothesis and this discussion that you were just bringing up with respect to the Amish children uh, versus those living uh, in more uh, sterile environments, if you will. We see the same thing with the Burkina Faso uh, studies of children in Africa in comparison to age-matched children in, uh, in Europe with respect to the metabolites of their gut bacteria, the short-chain fatty acids. So I, I think that the challenges that we experience are actually good. They're character building, if you will. And that the, an environment that doesn't expose uh, people to those types of challenges, be their food or be their straightforward bacterial challenges, uh, it, it really sets you up to be uh, less uh, resilient, if you will. And that, uh, you know, we should be able to uh, confront our digestive systems with an incredible array of, of different types of challenges. Uh, and we've lost that ability. Our resilience, you know, if you look at uh, what people are able to tolerate in terms of their foods these days in, in Western cultures, it's actually fairly limited. Uh, and here's an example. Um, you know, if you or I, I, I just, if I were to go to Mexico right now and eat some chili peppers, I would have a really tough time with that as opposed to maybe you, but other people who live there who've been exposed to that challenge for many years, they induce enzymes that are able to deal with the chili pepper. I mean, I, that comes to mind because I experienced that once in Chihuahua. <laughs> uh, but the same thing is it, developing tolerance uh, happens when we challenge the gut with challenging antigens, which we should be doing. Uh, if you look at it that way, 
then it maybe opens the door a little bit more to some gluten uh, in the right context. And the context, of course, being not what people are eating today, but in the context of how it was, how it was packaged with fiber, not covered with who knows what is being sprayed on the food these days. And I would also indicate uh, in the context of seasonality and also in the context of the person and his or or her uniqueness, uh, be it from an Ayurvedic perspective or other more perhaps 23andMe perspective. Right, yeah, from their genetics, you know, they're, they're absolutely, yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more, and I'm so happy to hear you say that. And I do think that, that when you look at it from a, a seasonality perspective, you know, there was one study that I read that showed that the, that the wheat berries at the hunter gallery, they, they didn't eat the, they did, they, somehow they were able to figure out that they only ate the ripe wheat berry, they didn't eat the non-ripe wheat berry. So when you think about that, that's a little small window of actually getting those wheat berries and getting those grasses, which are part of the end of summer, prepare for winter, store some fat, some, some fuel for the winter that's coming, and how critically important it is for the, for the fiber and the nutrition that we desperately need. And, who, and maybe the, why the was hygiene the hypothesis. by all this? Because that? that's when the seeds were ready to germinate. Right. So work for everybody. Right, right, and we would poop out the seeds and spread them around. It was all about that. And, and, and I know you're not a big fruit guy either, but fruits also, same kind of a thing. When they're there, you gotta eat them. Cause I mean, you know, we have a sweet tooth. We are particularly attracted to that taste, which I think is, you know, a very important taste for us. And, and I think that we, I feel like that when we go ketogenic, which I absolutely see the value of, I feel like if you do that for extended periods of time, we really run the risk of losing the understanding of nature's seasonal circadian rhythms of the I microbiome I think changing from more and more, more a big, uh, a big er uh, push for intermittence uh, uh, in terms of uh, getting into deep ketosis, intermittent fasting. Uh, and uh, Rob Wolf has a new book out talking about that. How uh, you know it's good to let up on this from time to time. I know that I do. And yeah. uh, but then again, the seasonality of this approach, is, especially as it relates to fruit and sugar, you can have fruit 365 days a year in anywhere you live in America, for probably around the world, uh, and that isn't in you know the chronobiology of that doesn't work. That is a a, a dramatic mismatch. So uh, I would agree with you that um, dietary sugar in the at the right time is a powerful signal to us of the caloric scarcity to come and, uh, and, and work for us. And it's a great thing that we have a sweet tooth as a legacy from the past. The problem is that people have uh, lost the ability to control being under the direction of that sweet tooth and give into it. While you, uh, John Duyard, give out information that says, you know, seasonality makes sense, yet that oftentimes can't override the power of that sweet tooth through dopamine to the need for immediate gratification. You know, your people who listen to you and read your book say, I get it, but uh, that sweet tooth is talking to me. The other point I wanted to make is, um, I sure don't want the message from you and me to be, therefore that the white bun on your hamburger meat is a good choice in October or whatever. Because right. I want to be super clear, that's not what you're saying and certainly not what I'm saying. 
No, I think that the, you know, I think the thing that we everyone agrees on is a is a you know no processed, no refined food diet. And I think that's the thing that everybody. And then you end up with the situation: okay, is high fat the best way to go, or is low fat and high carb the best way to go? And there's a ton of science on both sides of that aisle. So I want to I want to help me understand. How do we navigate that? I mean, you have the vegan diets, which are the only diets that have been shown to literally reverse heart disease. And then you have ketogenic diets, which really do, in a way, block that, that dopamine craving. I, almost think like, I feel like it's almost medicinal at least once a year or a season to go into ketogenesis, whether it be famine or higher fats in your diet, to break that craving for sugar because it's, it's insane and we can't get off of it. And that's what I think ketogenesis does. Said, wow, I feel pretty satisfied by eating nuts and seeds and more fat in my diet. I'm not feeling that craving for Snickers bars. And it breaks that. And then the famine puts you into a, you know, the autophagy and the stem cell activation and all the benefits you get from intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, which happened every time spring came around. We did that quite naturally. But, but then we still end up with the, the elephant in the room, which is, What's better? I can't determine really from a scientific perspective, which is why I like to go to ancient wisdom, is a vegan high, and I have answers, I'm going to ask you that, but I have my own opinion on that, is a high carb vegan-esque diet better than a low carb, high 70%, 80% fat ketogenic diet? Where, how do you help people understand and navigate through that? Well, you know, I, there are no simple answers here. And I think a context is very important. In other words, is a high fat diet a diet that is high in fat because it's high in animal products, for example? Or is it something more along, along the lines of, a, of the Mediterranean diet with added uh, olive oil or nuts? The PREDIMED study, for example, that showed a dramatic redu reduction in cardiovascular risk, breast cancer risk, and dementia risk. Uh, gaining uh, another uh, consuming a liter of olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, a week, you know, dramatically increasing the percentage of calories derived from fat uh, looked like it did some good stuff, if we are to believe the science. I would uh, perhaps challenge the notion that overall a vegan diet is the, you know, the best diet around. Uh, in my practice, I've seen quite a few individuals with some significant nutritional issues relating to illness as a consequence of being vegan without paying attention to certain caveats like uh, vitamin D, vitamin B12, and even dietary fat for that matter. So, uh, like that. pardon me? Omega-3s, things like that. Oh, for sure. Uh, so, uh, and yet, uh, at least as it relates to DHA, there are algae plant derived uh, solutions to the DHA issue. And I, uh, just to digress for just a moment, I think that, um, you know, this omega-6 versus omega-3 balance or imbalance, as it were, uh, we, we're just beginning to understand the depth of uh, how that plays out far more than simply saying, well, omega-6 oils are, they're bad for the cell membranes and they're associated with increased arachidonic acid, increased inflammation, therefore they're bad, whereas omega-3s, including DHA, simulate gene pathways that are good, increase membrane fluidity, synaptic transmission, etc. We now understand it through the lens of the endocannabinoid system, whereby those endocannabinoids uh, um, uh, that like 2-AG and anabinoid uh, are um, 
derived from the pro-inflammatory omega-6 derived ar arachidonic acid. And when you have those two endocannabinoids floating around, binding to the CB1 cannabinoid receptor, it enhances uh, the production of body fat, locking in body fat, raises blood sugar, um, increases appetite, increases uh, the production of inflammatory uh, chemicals. But again, understand that uh, this can be overridden to some degree by having enough omega-3s on board, specifically EPA and DHA. So uh, we're really beginning to understand that chemistry uh, through this new endo newly discovered endocannabinoid system, 1983, uh, that really gives us mechanistically a far better picture in terms of what happened to our ancestors when they began uh, discovering marine sources of protein and fat, in other words, eating fish. And I wouldn't downplay that as playing a huge role uh, in brain development and overall health and in the development of, of you know, the human society in general. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's, you know, I, I love the idea of a 90% plant-based diet, a couple of servings of sardines or salmon a week to cover your omega-3s, to cover your, your uh, um, you know, your B12 and things that you generally don't get in a vegan diet. When you go back to the ancestral diet, very difficult, there are no hunter-gatherer vegans because hunter is in the, in the name there. So you, you can't be a, a vegan. Hunt down that wheat plant. Right, right. So, so, I, so I think that I, a very medicinal diet for people with heart disease, no doubt, but whether it's a way of life diet is an issue and that people who live the longest, they are 90% plant-based, Ayurvedic, 90% plant-based, you know, having a little bit of those uh, omega-6s that you would get with nuts and seeds, you know, hunter-gatherers maybe gathered the skulls from other animal, dead animals, and brought them back and got all the omega-3s from literally eating the brains of dead animals. Uh, seems to be one of the ways we got a lot of omega-3s before we figured out how to fish, because most of the evolution took place in the middle of Africa, not on the coast, which is interesting, right? So those are all sort of big questions that... Uh, sort of loom out there in terms, but I still have a wonder how you can get that ketogenic amount of fat from a, you know, a, more of a plant-based diet without eating a lot of animal uh, fat. And, I, and we do know that the more plant-based you are as a ketogenic, the healthier that is, the more animal-based, the more unhealthy it is. And there's obviously a lot of good science pointing us in the direction to be more plant-based. And I know that you have become more plant-based. So talk to me a little bit why you made that decision. Let me just go back a moment and I will, I will approach that in just a moment. Um, uh, the idea of getting into uh, uh, ketosis, in other words, having ketone bodies floating around, in reality, doesn't require uh, any significant dietary change to a higher fat, lower carb diet for instance, dare I say that, why? Because you can push your body to make ketones by using things like medium chain triglycerides, uh, which as a matter of fact, are vegan approved plant-based derived from coconut oil by and large. So you can derive the benefits of having ketones floating around in your body, you know, without intermittent fasting or protracting the time that you have your breakfast or or you know, more aggressive fasting, or eating exceptionally high diet with total carbohydrate restriction. So I think it's a very important point that it opens the door for people uh, to derive the m many benefits of ketones in the blood. We can talk about that in a moment. 
uh, by just simply supplementing with uh, something like MCT or less effective would be the coconut oil itself. And that's certainly uh, vegan friendly as well. And so we're just getting you know, a handle on that. The products are becoming available. We see them uh, that allow that to happen. Now, um, what was the other thing that you, I, I said- But how do you do that naturally though? I mean, you know, our ancestral ancestors didn't get MCT oil and it was not that easy to get that, that concentration of fat. How do we do that? you know, sort of more plant-based vegan diet from a natural source, say in the spring when there's like no fats being harvested. How do, how do, we, how do we do that? Or how did they do that? Or did they do Well, that? obviously they didn't consciously do it, but this was a mechanism that, uh, that, that uh, was put into play with caloric restriction. Uh, that right. is that, uh, you know, the three meals a day wasn't codified until who knows who, Betty Crocker wrote it down somewhere or whatever, and then now we're eating three meals a day. Uh, the point is that uh, you will naturally go into ketosis uh, if you just don't have breakfast one day or you, keep, uh, or you decide to have your breakfast at 12 o'clock uh, or one or two in the afternoon. You're already producing ketones. Uh, ketone is a, is a very natural and normal state for humans. We get into that state virtually every morning. I mean, uh, the, the, the human that's uh, most in ketosis are infants. Uh, consuming breast milk, which is very rich in MCT oils. So during your first uh, six months of life, if you're being breastfed, you're in ketosis while you're building a better brain and making synapses and pruning synapses at the same time, all of which are enhanced by being in uh, ketosis, by drinking mother's milk uh, and having that specific type of fat as opposed to long chain fatty acids that you get from eating animals or that you get from tapping into your own fat resources. So um, to be, at least with respect to the infant, what a comparison then with uh, children eating um, baby food. I mean, I don't know if you've tasted baby food. Uh, I did when I was a resident, it's all we ate in the middle of the night because it's all we could find. We go down to the pediatrics ward and get the plum or the tapioca from Beechnut. I used to love it. Why did I love it? Because it was pure sugar. And I don't know if it still is pure sugar, but that's what you know. Parents are told to feed their uh, their children, and um, you know what does that do to brain development? What does that do to immune system function? You, ketosis is critical for that window of time, and these days we can harvest the beautiful aspects of ketosis uh, for brain-related illness, like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. We right. can utilize ketogenic protocols. Uh, to improve those situations. We can go through the literature if there's time. Uh, we understand, for example, in Alzheimer's disease, that the harbinger for that situation is a brain energy deficiency of the brain's ability to utilize glucose. And this may be occurring decades before the clinical manifestation of Alzheimer's. In other words, there are signatures that we can observe on SPECT imaging that looks at the brain's utilization of glucose using FDG, fluorodeoxyglucose, a radioactive glucose tracer. And we note decades before people begin losing their memory that there are hallmarks that correlate with the Alzheimer's parts of the brain where glucose is not being utilized. So we saw these abnormalities on these scans and the interpretation was flawed. Here was the interpretation. There are abnormalities in the Alzheimer's areas of the brain in how those neurons are utilizing glucose. The interpretation was 
Therefore, we're already seeing neurons becoming less functional. They're dying, they're becoming less functional. And that was a wrong interpretation. And we didn't know that until just a couple of years ago. And here's how we learned it. We learned it because we finally developed a, a, a C11 acetoacetate tracer that is able to measure the brain's cell's ability to use ketones as a fuel. And lo and behold, what we have found is that it's not that the neurons are dying and therefore they can't utilize glucose. The neurons are actually okay. They're not working well uh, because their ability to do glycolysis, utilize glucose is compromised. But as soon as you give them ketones, they come back online and are very, very happy. So now we see that we can fingerprint uh, individuals in terms of their brain's metabolism and target them who have uh, the, the ability to use ketones as super uh, fuel for the brain and, and regulate the provision of fuel by putting them on a lower carbohydrate diet and higher fat diet and giving them exogenous sources of uh, things from which they make ketones. And, it, it, and it, if, if this is too much of a segue, let me know. But we've now identified individuals in whom brain imaging reveals this compromise of brain glucose utilization. For example, women who have PCOS. These are women in their 20s. They have brain glucose utilization that is typical of what we would see in a normal adult at age 70 years. They have about a 14% reduction in their brain's ability to utilize glucose. Uh, children of mothers who've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, uh, people who carry uh, the APOE4 allele, for example, demonstrate these harbingers to future uh, cognitive impairment today when we measure their brain's ability to utilize fuel. Now, what's interesting is that we know that the, the brain glucose utilization is very much dependent on insulin, who knew? And that as we become more insulin resistant, we compromise brain energetics. The answer for brain energetics is giving the brain a fuel that it can use, ketones. The answer for insulin resistance is a ketogenic diet, who knew? I mean, uh, Sarah Hallberg has reversed type two diabetes and reduced insulin resistance by placing patients on a ketogenic diet. So the question might be from you, okay, I get it that uh, the intervention using a ketogenic diet in these individuals makes sense from a treatment perspective, but where do we go in terms of our recommendations day to day for general health? And I think that's a very valid question. Well, also to add to that question, using ketogenic to heal and repair, or does it heal and repair these neurons? So you can go back to eating in a more seasonal, appropriate fashion where you shift from, you know, from you know, a ketogenic sort of famine-esque diet to a, you know, a diet that has natural whole grain carbs and fruits. That, so you can actually have a diet that shifts and you're not only in ketogenesis because there seems to be issues with, like you said, long-term ketogenesis. So does it actually repair so you can go back to eating a little bit of sugar without going back into insulin resistance? Uh, uh, a, it repairs, but B, you wouldn't want to go back unless, uh, and this is where biometrics comes into play. So you'd want to look at what things are doing over the longer term, not just your fasting blood sugar on the day you happen to be fasting and your blood ketone levels, but look at more um, extensive uh, markers that have a more of kind of a long-term uh, meaning, like hemoglobin A1C 
and um, insulin, fasting insulin levels. I mean, that's something that doesn't change day to day. It does, but overall, uh, it, it, it sort of trends as opposed to being, it's sort of like being an investor, not, a, uh, not playing the stock market, looking for the long term. So uh, it, when looking at those factors, if you, uh, let's say you regenerated your brain cells, your back, your, uh, your ADAS COG score improved dramatically, you're back to work, and that happens. Dr. Dale Bredesen has written about it. Um, then is it okay to start cheating? Uh, I don't know that that would be my recommendation, but I would say first thing, let's look at your A1C. Let's look at your right. insulin resistance markers and see where you are. Because if your A1C, even though you've made some progress, is still elevated, we want to get that number to stay low. So I wouldn't let up on it. You know, halfway measures work halfway. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think the thing is, I love the idea of a ketogenic diet to allow the system to reset from the epidemic of prediabetes that our culture has from all the processed foods and the cooked vegetable oils and overeating wheat and sugar and refined foods. Absolutely. But I do see with my patients a reset factor where they can get back to eating a little bit of whole grain bread, you know, and, and, and actually keep the A1C below five and actually maintain really, really good numbers. And, and I see that. I, I mean, I, that's what I do in my practice. I see people uh, who have the worst digestive problems, like you said earlier, people can't digest anything anymore. And I feel like taking more stuff out of the diet is just the wrong idea. We started, I was taking people off of wheat and dairy in 1984 when I got out of Pratt, when I got out of school. And that worked for a little while, but it didn't solve the problem. I, I, people kept having more problems and it was clear that was a stopgap. It was not the solution. And that's what drove me to understand more. And then, so, you know, great sayings like in India, there's a great saying that you'll love, that one meal a day is for a yogi and two meals a day is for a bogey, which is a, a worker class laborer person, and three meals a day is for a rogi, which is a sick person, mostly dead in a hospital. So we're mostly dead at three meals a day, according to the Vedic understanding. And now we're understanding that time-restricted eating is a way to get us into ketogenesis and save our brain. So seasonal eating of a little bit of carbohydrates and fruits that are whole grain and not refined and processed can actually be something that might actually be you know, beneficial for us. And those high fiber times of year in the fall are triggering gut immunity, which we desperately need for the winter months when cold and flu season's upon us, how important it is. And that's why I publish a grocery list and a recipe list and a superfood list for free for every single month of the year. We pump it out for free for folks so they get, oh, this is what's in season in January and February and March and April. So they can get tuned into starting to get in sync. And it doesn't mean you have to only eat those seasonal foods. You just want to get more medicinal dosages of what is in season to get that benefit and then and making sure you're non-processed and non-refined. And then you can begin to flow with the circadian rhythms. And I, I, I firmly believe that the science is going to take us there. The research already tells our bugs change seasonally. You know, I saw science 10 years ago said the soil bugs change seasonally. So I was like, well, if the soil bugs change seasonally, the food change seasonally. And I saw a study where deer, where they were given bark in the winter and, uh, and, they, and they have microbes for bark in the winter and they have microbes for leaves in the summer. But when they gave bark to the deer in the summer, they had the wrong microbes and it caused such a level of indigestion, it could almost kill the deer. And I was like, that was, I had already written my book, The, the Three Season Diet, nobody read it, but, but, and I, but I was so fat, you know, you know, passionate about the idea that we should be seasonal eating because it's time-tested wisdom, right? But when I saw the deer die, or potentially die when they eat out of season, 
I was like, wait a minute, this is really important. So that's when I took the information, pumped it out into monthly packets and give people that for free so people can start to get acquainted with changing their microbiome, which probably gives them the time to, to restore and repair and rejuvenate as a circadian rhythm would actually naturally do, as opposed to having to be on a ketogenic high-fat high, high diet for so long. Because we know that Inuits have issues. I mean, we know that, the, that, they don't, that their bodies have genes to not allow them to stay in ketogenesis for an extended period of time. And they have higher infant mortality rates that were linked to being on an extended ketogenic diet. So that's another sort of issue, and I'd love to hear you. I know you have an answer to that because you're brilliant, but I'd love to hear why, how do we, how do we make that make sense? The, the, how the Inuits had this gene to not allow you know, uh, consistent, constant ketogenesis. Well, as I've said a few times, I want to come back to that because there's a couple of thoughts that I had that, that I, I just want to share. Yeah, and yeah. first of all, for your viewers, um, I think what you're seeing in the two of us is that we're just trying to figure it out. And, yeah. and our ideas change with time as we learn more and more. And we want to figure it out for ourselves, for our own health. And then when we do the best we can to learn as much as we can, we do an outreach like we're doing right now and write the books. We do what we can to, to you know, discuss our findings and, you know, and because it might be helpful for other people. Yeah, um, hallelujah, knuckles. <laughs> uh, the, um, the issue with the Inuits is really quite interesting. And you're right, they don't, they're not always in ketosis, though they uh, eat a, a very high-fat diet. What, what we have to understand is, yes, it's a high-fat diet, but at times, it's also a high-protein diet. When they eat the animal, whether it's the walrus, yes, it's a lot of walrus blubber, but they will consume meat, too. And it's at that time, through gluconeogenesis, that they will actually raise their blood sugars. The biggest issue that I would see uh, would be lack of dietary fiber, at least yeah. in the wintertime. Where is that going to come from? Right. Uh, there is a correlate that there is higher rates of infant mortality. Is it caused by being in ketosis? I don't know the answer to that. I think yeah, it's I more correlative, not causal in terms of what the studies have concluded. Uh, but I think it's an interesting study. I mean, look at their rates of, card uh, of cardiovascular disease, which are really much lower than uh, Western Europe, for example, which really prompted the whole EFA uh, fish oil kind of uh, studies that happened in beginning in the 1970s. How could these people who, when we were being told that high fat diet was going to kill you, but this stuck out like a sore thumb. Well, what about the Inuit who uh, eat blubber? They eat blubber for crying out loud. Their arteries should be clogged by this. Well, it didn't happen and it doesn't happen. So I think we should take information. You know, these are all learning experiences. And you know, your deer, uh, comments were actually quite interesting, giving deer bark at the wrong time of year. Uh, an interesting study that uh, similar was looking at the bear microbiome, looking at the, 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 the bacteria that made up the microbiota of the bear's intestines, a stool, during the foraging time in comparison to hibernation. And the microbiomes were incredibly different. Uh, in those two times. During one period of time, uh, this is a, a, you know, a time of doubling your body fat, basically, or the bear's body fat, eating the berries, getting ready for uh, winter, getting ready for hibernation. So doing the very, very best uh, to store 
body fat, as opposed to during hibernation when you think the bear is probably trying to reduce its burn and also release, uh, release fat as it's needed for caloric burn. The, the interesting thing I always pondered about when I read that study was, how do you get fecal material from a hibernating bear? I, I don't have any idea. I would love to have the answer to that study, uh, that question, and how do they do that? But uh, the real question is, is the change in the microbiome something that happens on its own in preparation for the food changes to come? Or are the changes in the microbiome induced by the different foods that are now being consumed? I tend to think it's probably the answer as it always, almost always is, is both. But I think it's more yeah. the latter. I think uh, as we've seen with humans and other animals, we induce these changes in our microbiomes that allow us then to adapt to this new diet. Well, we also have good science to show that, you know, that during the winter months, melatonin levels surge. It's sort of a, it's an, in fact, a, a natural birth control agent. And melatonin has been shown to dramatically shift the microbiome. So just the circadian rhythm of melatonin could actually, does in fact, change the microbiome. I'm sure in combination with the diet as well, it has to be, you know, a lock and key kind of a thing to put it all together properly, which is why all these rhythms have to be in sync for millions of years they were. And you're so right. We screwed that up by refining foods and agriculture didn't have, I don't really like blaming agriculture because I think we can still use, we wouldn't be here without it, right? I think we can still obviously use agriculture, but we have to wake up to the idea that we, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. We stopped living seasonally. We stopped connecting to the rhythms, which is Nobel Prize winning science. We stopped intermittent fasting. We, you know, we did a lot of things that screwed us up. And, and uh, along the way, I think there's a lot we can do to repair that without having to say, okay, wheat is just the bad thing. I think, you know, maybe you could next time you rewrite it and, re, and, and, uh, and edit and revise your book again, throw in the idea that wheat in a seasonal way, in a, a non-refined form in small amounts, once your digestion is back, actually is part of our history and, and something that, um, because I, I do feel like people have a polarizing view of wheat and other grains and a lot of other authors have come on board after your lead and kind of really just, you know, demonized grains of any kind. And I feel like from the point of view of the fiber and the anti-nutrients on them that stimulate gut immunity, I really wonder if we're letting an underlying digestive slash ability to detoxify continue on unknown, swept under the rug, because all we did was take out the hard to digest food, never fix the problem, and there's mercury on every organic vegetable from the coal mine plumes that we can't, if we can't digest wheat, we're not gonna break down that mercury, so where does it go? Into our lymph, into our gut, into our brain, and causes other real problems. So I felt really compelled to write Eat Wheat because it was like, we're creating a, you know, it's like when we took saturated fat out of the diet, we created a much bigger problem by, by telling people, you know, to do that. And now, are we doing the same thing by having, you know, no wheat, no dairy, no grain, no nuts, no seeds? I mean, there's just no lectins of any kind. Ay, ay, ay. This is not how we did it for millions of years. It's not part of our rhythms, and I feel like we got to get back to those rhythms. And that's what I, my case is. I believe you, what you did, is you, you made a big, huge dent in the people, because you hear the reports every day on how well people get when they stop eating wheat and dairy. I tell people, get off the wheat and dairy for a while until we fix and repair things. Absolutely. But I don't know if that's a way of life down the road, long term. Question, you can comment on that, but I want to know also about your, your choice to become more vegetarian. Again, I think, right? 
As a matter of fact, when we first met, I was vegetarian. But um, again, uh, I don't want to to, to leave I'm not people do with that. the notion that therefore go out. You know, we we've sanctioned now eating wheat, and no, 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 I've done that, or you have done that, because yeah. by and large, what people are going to get in consuming wheat products are things that are not for health. The notion of this is whole grain Cheerios, and therefore I'm going to eat it. Um, you know, that's just not reality. So that's but you can why get it, though, I, David. I, I threw that larger net is so that people really recognize that, uh, the, the, you know, they need to avoid this product as much as possible. If a person can get the type of wheat that you describe in season, uh, that's they a different, so it's about the context. And yeah. I also want to make one other comment, and that is, um, you know, everything that you described uh, is a disconnection. Uh, the disconnection from chronobiology, of seasonality, of diurnal variation. Uh, and uh, that is really the focus of our new book. And that is this, what we call disconnection syndrome. That we've become disconnected from the signals of our genome. Uh, we are amplifying signals from our genome that are not good for us, that increase inflammation, compromise antioxidant function, reduce our detoxification pathways. So we're disconnected from the, this code of life that's been gifted to us. We are disconnected from the messages from our gut bacteria. We are disconnected uh, from the part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, that allows us to make rational, empathetic, and compassionate decisions. Uh, we are disconnected from family, from neighbors, from communities, uh, from other countries, and we're disconnected from our relationship with the planet. So. Everything that we are looking at in moving forward with our new book is about reconnecting. And uh, that's what we need. We need to understand what it's all about and then reconnect to it as best we can. Now, with reference to uh, me becoming more plant-based, first, um, I'm not fully uh, plant-based. Uh, but that said, uh, I've been mostly plant-based for a couple of decades, uh, even more so now because I wanted to believe for self-justification that you could raise animal uh, products in a way that wasn't uh, planet-threatening. I, I just don't think uh, um, I'd believe that anymore. I think that uh, eating a, a lot of plant, uh, rather animal-based foods is environmentally threatening. So in that regard, uh, I'm restricting more and more. I'm just overwhelmed with the, the science of dietary fiber, which we never understood, uh, and its importance in maintaining a healthy gut uh, array of bacteria that is diverse. So having more dietary fiber that is, by definition, plant-based, there's no dietary fiber in any animal product. Um, so that's been, I think, the motivation force for me to even more, be more plant-based. But even the original Grain Brain five years ago was primarily saying, uh, the plate should be colorful, vegetable-based foods. And if you have the, the meat or animal protein, it should be considered the garnish, not the focus of the meal. And I feel more so. Um, I read a, a book recently by Suzanne Cameron, and it's called OMD, One Meal a Day. And she advocates going one meal a day, at least fully plant-based. And I think that's something everybody can achieve. Uh, the, the outcome of that is uh, hu huge to some degree, but uh, it's not going to turn around the, 
trend, but it at least helped slow it down. The trend in terms of what um, animal, you know, what animal for food is doing to the planet. So um, I, I think that uh, it, it really brings to focus uh, an important concept that I, you and I spoke about a while ago, and that is to um, to really embrace the notion that messaging from thought leaders, if that's what we are, can and should change with time. And I learned from John Dewey every time I talk to him, and I appreciate your 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 knowledge, and. I think about what you say and it challenges me and therefore I might change my thought process and my messaging. But that is, uh, again, activating the prefrontal cortex that allows you to stop and listen, which is what we did last time we were together uh, on a podcast, which was so, um, that was the comment from everybody. Wow, you guys let each other talk and, and we're accepting. And so... Uh, again, messaging may change. You and I may do a podcast in, in five years and who knows what we'll, what we'll be saying, but it'll probably be somewhat different than what we talked about today. Yeah, I'm sure if you and I got together, we could get the government opened anytime soon. You know, within a, probably an hour, we could figure that one out. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, I doubt we're the, we can't go there. I mean, I, yeah, I have no, to no, look no. towards the light. I, no, I agree. But I do think that when people come together and talk is what your point is. That's the you point. Know, it, Possibly that's what made our brain helped our brain triple in size was us coming together with our differences like we did today. Uh, I, I love the fact and I, I want to acknowledge you for for making that point that we are here to evolve, you know, and, and be willing to look at the science and and grow and change. And you've been so willing to do that. And very few people are. And I really want to, to, to thank you for that openness. And I really feel like that's a great part of your success is not the book that you wrote, but who you are, who wrote it, makes, it makes a huge difference. And uh, I know you, you go to battle a lot because a lot of people, you know, fight back tooth and nail against what you're having to say. But I think, you know, I think what we did here today is we found some really good common ground that, uh, and I, uh, you know, starting to think you're not crazy and that you're, you really do, uh, you, you have some really important points. I understand why you did it now, because I know you can't go buy really good wheat and people eat way too much of it and they maybe needed that absolute restriction. But as people get more educated, they're gonna be able to say, you know what, if I get my body in balance, I, I wanna start to connect with the rhythms again and get that connection. That's gonna include some of the foods that, that people probably shouldn't be eating and you know, who've been on a standard American diet for a very, very long time. And your book, Brainwash, I just can't wait. And I'd love to have you back and, you know, and, and talk to you about that book because I think that's really you know, where my heart is, is on that connection. And, uh, um, and that's such an important piece is to get people back in rhythm. And we're not. And I want to thank you so well, much. Well, you'll have us both on. You'll have me and, and Austin. And I, I have to tell you, it's been such a, a, a wonderful experience for me to, um, to work with uh, somebody of his generation who sees the world uh, differently. Uh, and, and actually, um, you know, that he's 30 and, and they see a world that we've given to them uh, that is somewhat challenging. And uh, how wonderful that people in his generation are looking at these challenges and saying, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna try to write some of this and uh, write in terms of R-I-G-H-T uh, and write a book as well. So it's encouraging. I, you know, I, I feel um, 
I feel very hopeful. There's a lot of voices r rising to sing this chorus now, and it's uh, it gives me great hope. And and again, you know, the idea that uh, people with different ideas can come together and you know, we can start with red and we can start with blue and then we can leave with purple. Who knew? So um, I, I think it's really, uh, really, uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, you're very welcome. So David, the book is just out, revised and totally updated. Uh, Grain Brain book is just out. Um, how can people get a hold of you? What's the best way to get more information? Well, why don't I just give everybody my cell phone number? No, sure. I'm kidding. Um, you can reach me at drperlmutter.com. That's drperlmutter.com. And I have a weekly free newsletter that goes out. The book is, uh, here's the book. You can tell it because it has the red thing on the top. There you go. And that's yep. everywhere on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble. And, I got it right here with uh, all the white go. papers oh, in it. Oh, good. You got some uh, highlights in there too, I see. <laughs> I love your stuff. You know, I, I had to be prepared for you because, you know, we're, you know we, we call this a, uh, Round two, you know, going again, you know, because, you know, I wrote a book called Eat Wheat. How could the Eat Wheat guy and the Grain Brain guy get together? But I love you. And I think we you, showed, think we showed how we can make that happen and we'll keep yeah. doing it. And at love the it. end of the day, we we uh, we learn from each other and we help move the ball down the field. That's what it's all about. That's Show right. me the person who has all the answers. and We'll do that interview. And uh, um, I don't think that's going to happen. That'll be my 15 year old. Oh, there you go. OK. Well, we were all 15 at one point. <laughs> exactly. All right, buddy. Good to see you. Thank you all so right, much. Good to see you too, John. All the best.